How are we doing? We good? I like being at a church where I can say, how are we doing? And people respond. At my church, everyone sits like really far back and it's like 100 miles to the back of the church. So it's good to be able to be here today. Um, thank you so much to Lee uh, for the opportunity to come. Um, he rang me up a few weeks ago. He's like, hey, any chance you can preach? I'm like, hey, I'm actually preaching this morning and um, my church has been cancelled this afternoon. So I checked with my senior minister and he said, yep, so really glad to be here. Um, if you've got those uh, leaflets or your Bibles or your phones open, keep, keep them open. My goal is to just explain that second uh, reading uh, that was read to us. And um, hopefully, um, it's, we will walk away a little more informed and a little more moved and grateful uh, for all that the Lord has done for us. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. So let's, um, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity at this time of the year to remember these days when you announced the arrival of your Son. Father, we ask that you would move in us and that you would deepen our love for you. Father, help us to leave here changed, to appreciate all that you've done for us, And Father, we ask that having grown in our knowledge, that we may be more equipped to serve you with great joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the good things about democracy is that we're able to get rid of poor leaders. Every now and then we'll get rid of our leaders because they haven't been up to scratch, they haven't been performing well, Um, and particularly of recent times in Australia, it seems as if we are able to get rid of leaders almost too easily. It seems as if every time we're changing out the batteries in our smoke alarms, we're getting rid of our leaders. Now, I want to begin by asking you what type of leader you would want. What type of leader would you want if that leader was to remain in power forever? What type of person would you want in power if they were to remain forever? What type of king would you like to rule you if they were to remain forever? What type of prime minister would you want to serve you if they were to have a never-ending term? What type of leader would you follow if they were to be your leader forever? It's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Everyone has flaws, and over time those leaders' flaws seem to seep out and they affect those underneath them. If they're going to be in power, you'd pretty much want someone who's perfect, wouldn't you? You'd pretty much want someone who couldn't do anything wrong. Well, in the passage that we just had read for us, we see that God has a plan. God has a huge plan to enter this broken world and to establish his son as king. He's going to unite warring and differing factions in this world and he's going to bring together a people for himself. Surprise, surprise, it doesn't involve democracy. He's going to do it and he's going to establish his son as the ruler of this new kingdom. So if I was to condense this next little... 25 minutes or so down to 
eight words, I would say that this is about God's great and perfect king who will rule forever. God's great and perfect king who will rule forever. Now, the passage that we've got in front of us, I want to break that down into three, uh, into three, three chunks. We see, firstly, God's great favor. Then we'll look at God's great king and then God's great power. So firstly, God's great favor. And verses 26 and 27, Luke, the gospel writer, he's an incredibly detailed and accurate historian, and he writes for certainty. He writes to give his readers certainty. That's, if you read the introduction of Luke, that's what he states as being his aim in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. In verses 26 and 27, he's setting the scene. We have an angel who's been sent to us from God. And he's been sent to Mary to give her a special message. Now, Mary doesn't seem to be anyone of any great significance. She's not from a prominent uh, family. She's not the daughter of a nobleman. She's uh, not from a royal line. She doesn't even seem to come from a very um, well-off place. She's... Uh, a young woman from the working-class town of Nazareth. And Nazareth is in kind of the backwater area of Galilee. It's kind of nowhere, really. All we know about her is that she's a virgin and she's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. If, I was to, if these events were unfolding in Australia, you might expect a 16-year-old girl from Ipswich, Queensland... No one's from Ipswich, are they? <laughs> so, I was thinking, like, where, where's like most... Anyway, this is like nothing, no, nothing special, nothing ordinary. However, in verse 28, we see that she is no ordinary woman. She is favoured by God. In other words, God has looked down and he has chosen her. He set her apart for a very special role in his plan. Now, for... For many centuries, the main translation of the Bible that the church used was the Latin Vulgate. And it had a very unhelpful uh, translation of verse 28. Verse 28 was literally translated, Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. And the idea was that Mary had so much grace and so much goodness. She'd been this like perfectly obedient young woman up until this point, that she actually attracted God's attention. And so she deserved this role that she was going to have even before the angel had come to her and given her this message. And over time, this led to what we call the elevation of Mary in the Catholic Church, where they held her up as this um, woman who has an abundance or this excess of grace. And so if you've been to a Catholic church, or maybe you're raised in a Catholic school, uh, you might have been taught you could pray to Mary. And she, out of her free, and free will and out of her goodness, she could give you some of the excess grace that she has. And the prayer would go, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Now that's just straight from Luke 1.28. But then the Roman Catholic Church introduced this idea that you can pray to Mary, which is, which is blasphemous. We only pray to God. And they would pray, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now 
and at the hour of our death. Now, this is not, this is not what Luke, the gospel writer, intended for us to do with verse 28. Mary was favoured by God because she was chosen out of God's kindness to uh, play a special role in his plans to bring his son into the world. Mary, to be clear, Mary didn't attract God's favour because of anything she had done in and of herself. God looked upon her and she became the object of God's undeserved favour. A few years ago, um, or many years ago now actually, when I was back in year six, we went to the RSPCA. And you go to the, when you go to the RSPCA, you don't uh, go and look through all the, the breeding records or the, um, the pedigree of the, the puppies that you choose. You choose an animal because you want to love that animal and you want to commit to it. It's nothing that the animal's done that deserves your attention. And so as you take that animal home, that animal becomes the object of your affection and your kindness and your favor and grace. And that's a little bit what it's like when God looked on Mary and chose her for his, um, to bring his son into this world. Mary is the recipient of God's undeserved favor. Now, next time you're out and uh, you're having this standard old chat that goes with, your, with a, someone from a, a Catholic background, oh, there's nothing different between Protestants and Catholics, isn't there? We all worship the same God. Well, on, on this particular point, yes, we need to draw a line and we need to say, actually, we don't pray to Mary. We don't, pray, we don't believe that she's full of grace and able to dispense excess merit for us. In fact, she's just as much a recipient of God's undeserving grace as each of us. And isn't that what the Christian life is like? We don't come to God. None of us came to God with our printout of how many donations we'd made to charities. We don't come to God with a CV of how many committees we've served on, how many boards we've served on. We come to God with absolutely nothing. He's done nothing to attract his attention, nothing to draw his focus into, onto us. The Bible says that we've got no righteousness in and of ourselves. And yet God in his kindness, even in our sinfulness, God looks upon us and he welcomes us. He takes us home. He receives us. He washes us clean and he brings us into a relationship with him that we don't deserve. Now, it might be easy if you're here today, you're not a believer, and you're um, skeptical of, of the story that we just read. It might be very easy to think, well, perhaps Mary's just a very young, impressionable woman. She's um, engaged to be married to this man. She's had a, an a, um, illicit relationship and she's gotten herself pregnant and she's kind of just this hopeless romantic who's come up with a great story to cover her uh, misdeeds. However, that's not the view of Mary that Luke gives us. Luke has researched this and as I'm sure he would have interviewed her, he got a very different impression of what Mary is like. Look at Verse 29. In verse 29, we see that 
even when the angel comes to her, and even though she's greatly troubled, Mary's quickly able to gather her thoughts. And literally, it says that she reasons with herself. She tries to discern what sort of address, what sort of greeting this might be. So even though she's not from a very well-off background, probably very little education, if any, we see that she's an astute and thoughtful young woman. Point two, God's great king. Well, in verses 31 to 33, we see that God promises his great king. This is a king who will rule forever. In verse 31, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, he says, you will be with child and give birth to a son. Now, it's all, it's very easy to get hung up here. How could a virgin possibly conceive? How could a virgin give birth to a son? Isn't this physically impossible? Well, I want to just halt us right there because to, do, to, to go down that track is actually to miss, I think, the main point. The main point is not so much that a virgin can give birth and, can, and can, uh, can conceive and give birth. But the main point is actually what the angel says about this son. This is the one who will be born, who will save his people from their sins. He is to be called Jesus, which means God saves. I don't know if you've ever caught yourself after you've Perhaps you've dabbled in sin, you've lashed out in anger, you've done something. Perhaps you've sunk to a new low, a low that you never thought even you were possible of. And as you sit there reflecting on your life, perhaps overwhelmed with guilt, it's very easy to think, how the heck am I going to come back from this? How am I ever going to fix this record of debt, this record of sin that now sits stained against my past. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. He who dabbles in sin deserves to die. Well, there is one. There is one. There is one who will save us. And his name is Jesus. Even more remarkable, even more impressive, even more unlikely then a virgin conceiving and giving birth, is that we should have a saviour. We should have someone who can deal with our sin, who can make for us the perfect sacrifice that we need. And verse 32, he will be great. He will not just be great in comparison to every other leader. He will be great in and of himself. And as you get to know Jesus in Luke's Gospel... We have someone who doesn't just um, mildly impress. We have someone who overwhelmingly impresses us. His gracious selflessness as he deals with people who are hard, so hard in their hearts. His perfect power is demonstrated as he drives out demons, as he heals the sick. His compassionate care as he associates with the marginalized and those outside of the public eye. He was morally perfect, absolutely without flaw in his day. According to the law, he did everything that was required. And of course, 
we see his humility as he's willing to go to the cross. The one who least deserved to die willingly went to die for us. He will be called the Son of the Most High, the angel goes on. This is an Old Testament reference to the divine Son of God who would be appointed to establish God's kingdom. He will rule the nations and he will drive out God's enemies. The effects of sin, the effects of evil, all the disharmony, the broken relationships, he will push that out. He will remove that from God's presence and he will establish a new kingdom. And he is the one who will reign and reign and reign and his kingdom will know no end. A thousand years beforehand, God had promised to David that he would have a son who would establish his kingdom forever. And then 300 years after David, Isaiah had prophesied that there would be a child who would be born, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. This is no ordinary baby. This is no ordinary human being that is to be born. What is more impressive, what is, sorry, what is more likely is that a virgin could conceive, I think, than that we should have somebody who should be able to do this. What's remarkable at Christmas is not so much that we should have a virgin conceive and give birth to a son, but it's that God himself should enter into our world. That is what is remarkable. That is what is truly profound. It's that God should, the one who created this world, should enter into the created order, take on human flesh, and live and dwell amongst us. And as another preacher very helpfully put it, he said, it's not the virgin birth that makes the incarnation credible. It's not the virgin birth that makes the incarnation credible. It's the incarnation. It's the fact that God would show up to earth that makes the virgin birth credible. In other words, if God himself were to come down to earth, what kind of arrival would you expect? What kind of entrance would you expect for the God who made this world? Well, I hope you can appreciate that we should expect nothing less than something supernatural to signify that this is no ordinary baby that is being born. Well, previously, we noted Mary's rational thoughtfulness as she tried to work out what the angel was saying to her. Now, in verse 34, you might think that she's actually, uh, she actually doesn't believe what's being said. In verse 34, she says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? However, when we step back and think about this question, I think that Mary is actually showing that she's already accepted that this will happen. In other words, she's already come to believe that what the angel has said will come to pass even before she gets married. In other words, Mary has responded not only with great thoughtfulness, but with great faith. She accepts and believes. 
Well, the answer to this question, how will this be, is my third point, and it is that it will happen by God's great power. So thirdly, God's great power. In verse 35, the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The one to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it's very easy at this moment to step back and go, whoa, this is a little weird. Is this a euphemism for sex? Did God, like, come down and have sex in, with Mary? And some of the early critics of the church, and particularly of the Christian faith, thought that Christians were trying to go one up on Greek mythology, where the gods had come down, they'd had sex with women, and they gave birth to these half-men, half-god creatures. Now, verse 35, it isn't a euphemism for sex. We need to remember that this is not the point. God does not need to have sex to create a human being. Genesis 1, what did he do? He took dust and he breathed into it and he formed a man. Genesis 2, he took a rib from the side of a man and out of that he made Eve, man's great helpmate. And so here we have an entirely fresh demonstration of God's power. This is a demonstration of his power on the same level as his creative power as when he first made mankind. Because what he's doing in Mary is he's creating a new humanity. He's creating a new leader who will be head of a new um, like a, a new humanity within the human race. This is Jesus. He will be holy. Not having a father, he will be untainted by sin. This is the perfect union between God and man. He'll be untouched and uninfluenced by the sin that every other human being has fallen into and dabbled in. He'll be a holy son. And so being a holy and perfect son, he is perfectly qualified to live a life and make a sacrifice for his brothers and sisters. And at the end of his life, that's what he would do at the cross. Well, not only was Mary going to experience God's great power, but so too was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Mary's relative, and in the few verses before, the verses that we're looking at, an angel had appeared to Zechariah, and he said to him, that his wife, who had been barren for many years, would have a son in her late age. This is, as soon as you see this, this is, this is like when alarm bells go off, because this is when you, you look back, and whenever you see a barren woman giving birth, this, this is God at work, opening the womb and bringing life out of the impossible. Why, is this, why will this happen? Verse 37... All these things are possible. All these things are possible because nothing is impossible with God. This is the God who we serve. The God for whom nothing is impossible. This is the God who we know. The God who made this world and yet freely enters into it to save us. And he 
does it through very ordinary means, but he also puts very extraordinary little symbols or signs around his entrance to draw our attention to it so that we are not left wondering and we don't miss his arrival. Well, in these verses, I hope you've seen how God's great power and God's great favour have brought about his great and perfect king who will rule forever. Now, the question I want to... The question I began with today was, what type of leader would you choose? What type of leader would you want? What type of leader would you bow to or would you follow if they were to remain in power forever? I hope you can see that you wouldn't want any human leader. There's no one you, that would be worth following if you had to follow them for the rest of, this life, rest of eternity. I'm sure you can see that there's only one. I hope you can see that there is only one who is actually worth following. And that is God's great King. He is the one who is worthy of our attention. Now, let's just quickly look back over these verses and let's look at Mary's responses. I've highlighted them already, but let's just focus in on Mary's responses. In verse 29, we saw that even though she was greatly troubled at this news, and even though you might be here as maybe you don't believe, and even though the idea that one day God will establish a king to rule over you, maybe that's threatening and maybe that's troubling. But like Mary, can I encourage you to think, draw your thoughts together, rationalize, reason, Talk to someone, speak to Lee, speak to the friend who brought you, because you will find solid answers. This is a faith that makes sense. In verse 34, we saw that Mary didn't question out of doubt or skepticism. She had accepted these things, and she was confident that what was said to her would come to pass. And so if you're here today, perhaps you've just been a Christian for maybe just a few years, but you're still kind of unsure about some things in the Christian faith. There's little things that you're not quite sure about. Maybe there's miracles in the Bible that you find hard to explain, and so you want to withdraw, and you're not too confident about them. Maybe even this one about the virgin birth is something that you're not too confident about. Well, even this was so significant that it would be written into our creeds. Who is Jesus? He's the one who is conceived of by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. These are things which define what it means to be a Christian. And in verse 38, we see Mary's great humility, how she offers herself wholeheartedly to serving the Lord. Now, my last question is, where is this kingdom now? Where is this king that was promised? Where is this rule? Why hasn't sin been dealt with? Why hasn't the effects of sin been put away? Why do we still suffer? Why do we still deal with pain and brokenness? Why do we still have cancer? Well, this king who came supernaturally 
who conquered death and rose to life, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he sits there until his enemies, it says in Psalm 110, until his enemies should be made his footstool, a footstool under his feet. Now, this might seem a little unimpressive, but whenever somebody comes to Christ, that is when we see the Lord Jesus Christ establish his rule and reign in this world. The gospel that you proclaim here in Cronulla, the gospel that you are going to be sharing over this summer, the message that you will be broadcasting from this church, the, the message of, of forgiveness, the people that you'll be welcoming into, these are the people that are, these are the people that have the opportunity to hear and to know. And every time they bow the knee, every time they acknowledge the Lord Jesus as Lord, that is God extending his kingdom. And one day he will come again and establish it in power. Right now he has given us the opportunity to repent and to come in. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, then make the most of this time. Because believe it or not, this will happen. And there won't be a democracy. God will do this. And those who are under his kingdom will be welcomed in to an eternal kingdom and enjoy an eternal relationship with him. And those who oppose his son will be removed from his presence. So please, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, it's great you're here, but make sure you don't leave this place without thinking about these things and giving your life to him. He is the great king. Would you want anybody less than him? I'm sure you wouldn't want anybody less. He alone is worthy of being our ruler forever. Let's pray. Now, Father, we, we thank you so much for such a good and perfect king. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to repent and to acknowledge his lordship and his reign. Father, please help us to love him, to submit to him, to honor him, to raise his name in this area. And Father, please help us to love him and serve him. Father, we pray all of these things in your son's precious name. Amen.